Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, former U.S. Senator James Buckley makes a plea for federalism. Brian Aitken discusses his imprisonment over legal firearms. Eric O'Keefe describes a pre-dawn raid over political speech. And James Grant details the depression that fixed itself. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. With a new Republican Congress and uh, attacks overseas, uh, a lot of people are very concerned about surveillance and intelligence gathering uh, in this new year. So I'm talking with Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Patrick Eddington, a policy analyst in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute. Uh, and b before we get started, we'll commend to you uh, a conference on surveillance, the inaugural conference on surveillance that uh, Julian put together was a was a, a great success, and I think it brought a lot of issues to uh, people that uh, they might not have been thinking about. So first of all, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So uh, Patrick, I want to start with you. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not doing anything wrong. And why should I care about whether or not the go government or governments uh, more broadly are snooping through emails, searching for keywords, uh, looking at my bank statements. Yeah, I mean, this has been one of the most common themes that you hear uh, in terms of pushback on this stuff. And, and to me, it really kind of boils down to this. As an individual citizen, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter whether you think you have nothing to hide. It matters whether the government decides that you're hiding something, right? So you take the case, I'll go back in history here a little bit, but you take the case of uh, Portland, Oregon lawyer and American Muslim convert, Brandon Mayfield. This is a guy that was literally just minding his own business until one day the FBI botches a fingerprint analysis and decides that he was a, a major wheel in the Madrid train bombings in 2004. In the end, of course, he had absolutely no connection to it. But the Bureau took that piece of information. They used it to get uh, surveillance going on him in every way. They actually went into his home without his knowledge, searching for incriminating material, et cetera, et cetera. And when it finally came to trial and they, they had to go through the discovery process and so on, then it all came out that the fingerprint analysis was botched and the Spanish government had said, you're going down the wrong road here and so on and so forth. And in the end, it didn't matter. Brandon Mayfield was a completely innocent man. But somebody in the government decided that he wasn't. And that's why people should care. And government is not either perfect or benevolent in, in cases like this. The power of the state wielded against an individual human being is one of the most terrifying and formidable things that anyone can ever encounter. Okay, so on the on the front of uh, surveillance, Julian, I'll, I'll ask you, we've had these revelations sort of just hanging out there for a long time and more and more uh, keep coming. And yet we really have not seen any movement on Congress to rein in the power of the federal government to uh, snoop on Americans. Oh, we, we've seen some attempts. Uh, the USA Freedom Act in the previous Congress uh, was blocked by uh, a margin of just a couple of votes from moving forward in the Senate. Uh, and Congress will have to act at some point uh, before this summer because in June the provision of the Patriot Act, uh, under which the 
bulk telephone metadata collection program that was the subject of the first Edward Snowden story, um, that authority is set to expire. And so um, they'll need to act if only to reauthorize that provision of the Patriot Act. And uh, I think given the uphill battle that would certainly face, at least in the House, uh, it seems likely they're going to have to take some kind of steps towards reform. But it is disheartening to see that uh, all this time has passed and we are still fundamentally working on trying to fix the uh, the program that we learned about in the very first of the Edward Snowden stories. And I think one of the reasons we see uh, blocking is at the time we had the vote on the USA Freedom Act. It was ISIS. Uh, ah, there's violent group taking over territory in the Middle East. So, of course, we need, uh, you know, a domestic telephone metadata collection program. And then when cartoonists are gunned down in Paris, of course, this is just another reminder of why we need a domestic metadata collection program. There's this bizarre process of government by non sequitur where, um, you know, every threat is supposed to validate um, the need for this vast collection program that every independent analysis has, has found to to have no, no real intelligence usefulness, um, which is quite stunning. It may be helpful that the National Academy of Sciences has just come out with uh, a new paper that we're uh, asked to produce by the National Research Council. Uh, was asked to produce by the president, looking at technical alternatives to bulk collection. Because it turns out there's no perfect substitute for vacuuming up uh, all the data and having it all right there at your, at your very own fingertips. Um, but as it turns out, you can get pretty close. And that, uh, you know, if you're not actually just interested in, in snooping on everybody, but only in detecting the activities of people, there's actually some reason to be suspicious about. Um, there are technically plenty of ways you can get about the same benefit um, without, in fact, compromising the security of everyone's data. Um, it's, the unfortunate thing is that it seems uh, almost as though we refuse to believe this, that we talk so much about trade-offs between uh, liberty and security that we can't possibly feel secure unless we're reassured that someone's violating our liberty. Patrick Eddington? Well, and, and of course, you know, uh, when you're dealing with politicians, whether they're on this side of the Atlantic or the other side of the Atlantic, uh, they respond almost uh, instinctively to this fear phenomenon, right? I mean, so if we've been doing something before um, and, and we basically convinced ourselves that it is actually working, that it is actually effective, then clearly more of the same is called for, uh, even though, as Julian pointed out, there's a complete logical disconnect between all of that. And so you have the circumstance now where politicians, certainly in this country, and I would, I would argue across the Atlantic as well, seem incapable of actually learning. They seem actually incapable or unwilling to actually look at the data as it stands. I mean, you had two different national reports here that were issued, the first in 2002, the Congressional Joint Inquiry, and then in 2004, of course, the 9-11 um, the Commission report, which found that there was not a problem with intelligence collection prior to 9-11. The issue was, as, as the commission put it, connecting the dots. Right? So having the information in place and failing to act on it is the story literally of every intelligence failure from Pearl Harbor right up to this tragedy in Paris. There is a, a unique, uh, I guess, place that intelligence agencies have with respect to oversight uh, different from almost every other federal agency and that is they operate in secret and a whole lot of they, what, they, what they argue is their strategic advantage is that they do 
so much of what they do uh, in secret. But we have trouble in many cases even identifying the source of the authority that they are using, statutory authority or otherwise, for the actions that they're undertaking. Or they choose to simply not worry about actually having an authority, right? So when we have the original debate over the AUMF to go into Afghanistan in the fall of 2001, the administration wanted to insert language in there to allow essentially for a domestic warrantless surveillance program. And Senator Daschle, the majority leader at the time, told the White House no. So what did the White House do? Well, they just went ahead and set up this thing that we now call the Stellar Wind Program, which is a warrantless surveillance program, and just went off and did it anyway. So, There's, a, there's a, um, an almost comical, the disturbing exchange from the, the church committee hearings back in the 1970s where a senator is asking one of the a senior, I think, FBI official, uh, well, so at any point in the discussions of, of uh, implementing this programs of surveillance against domestic dissidents, um, when did the question of, of legality uh, come up? And the official is confused. Legality, you mean, and the senator says, well, whether what you were doing was legal. Um, and he says, you know, I, I just don't recall that ever that ever coming up. Um, and, you know, things have gotten better, I suppose. Um, there are lots of lawyers scrutinizing everything they do. But it's very clear that under the cover of secrecy, the approach is, is invariably, we have a very good sense of what we want to do. In the case of Stellar Wind, um, we've been doing it under sort of presidential fiat without statutory authority for several years. Um, and so we already have the program. It's underway. Now the question is, all right, well, this has to be legal. Uh, can we rifle through the statutes and find lines we can circle um, that a court that never thinks its opinion we're going to see the light of day will agree is good enough to authorize uh, what we were already doing. Uh, and secrecy, I think, makes it both tempting to do that. Well, you know, maybe this is an argument I'd be embarrassed to make in open court, but uh, I don't need to make it in open court. Uh, but it also makes it much easier to, uh, you know, put off questions about whether what you're doing is worth the candle, uh, whether it passes in a kind of elementary cost-benefit test. It is crystal clear that when those first Snowden stories came out, uh, the overseers themselves believed and repeated a series of talking points about how this program had stopped dozens of terror attacks or maybe a dozen of terror attacks. And that became clear under a slight bit of independent scrutiny was just an absolute fiction. It was ludicrous. It was clearly not true. Um, but that's not, I mean, the, the, the oversight bodies aren't doing that kind of independent scrutiny. Uh, you tell them for years, this is absolutely vital, um, this has been saving lives, it becomes extremely difficult to sort of adapt and recognize, no, in fact, um, what the evidence shows is that none of that is the case. And you, you wind up having a circumstance on Capitol Hill entirely too often where the, the folks who are appointed to these committees, they tend to come from what I will call the cheerleading class, right? These are folks who have already bought in essentially to the paradigm that collection is good, collection is necessary. So Diane the, the, Feinstein and Mike Rogers. Uh, you know, the, 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 more the, the, the more the merrier essentially. And so, you know, in, in now in the 114th Congress, you know, you have um, Devin Nunez of California who's going to be the chairman. Uh, this guy is an absolute apostle of this stuff. Peter King of New York, uh, an absolute apostle of this kind of thing, right? And so – there is generally no 
sufficiently large number of members on these committees that operate in secrecy who are willing to coalesce together and create enough of a block to become enough of a problem to actually begin to kind of peel the layers away and actually get at the truth. And then, of course, the intelligence agencies are expert, right, at playing the 20-question game. Uh, you know, oh, you meant that program. Oh, 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 sorry. No, we didn't, we didn't understand the question, et cetera, et cetera. We saw this, of course, with, uh, with James Clapper in his exchange with Senator Wyden last year when Senator Wyden asked a very carefully calibrated question, and, and I think Julian has probably got something to, to add on this. I mean, the thing that's amazing to me, though, is that we now have people in Congress who are more Catholic than the Pope. <laughs> at, the, at the conference that Caleb mentioned that we had at Cato in December, we had Bob Litt, the general counsel, the office of the director of national intelligence, on stage saying repeatedly that he wished the USA Freedom Act had passed, that the reforms there to bulk collection of communication records, that the reforms uh, to the FISA court were all things the intelligence community could live with, would in some cases actually probably improve their operational capabilities with respect to certain kinds of records collection analysis, um, and that they were in favor that it would not hamper them. And yet then you have, despite this from the top officials in the intelligence community, you have leadership on the intelligence committees in Congress saying, my God, no, somehow this will blind us against ISIS. I mean, the relationship between a group like ISIS or shootings in France and domestic telephone records uh, is, is opaque to me. Maybe I, I just haven't read the right classified memo. But, um, but, I mean, it's astonishing that when the spies themselves are telling you they can live with reform, the overseers are are making the more aggressive case than than even the spies. This is a, a case of a relatively secretive agency when a, an agency like the Pentagon or Housing and Urban Development uh, says they don't need something. You also have members of Congress who say, well, no, we're going to give it to you. And, and at the end of the day, you know, it, it goes back to domestic politics, right? I mean, none of these folks who sit on these committees want to be in a position where they have cast a vote or taken some action that can then turn around and be used as an attack ad. And this is exactly what happened to Justin Amash of Michigan, you know, this past cycle, right? This is a guy who is very principled when it comes to these issues. He's been a leader on trying to actually rein in all these surveillance programs. And in this particular attack ad, and you can find it online very easily, they were basically trying to, to paint this, this guy this, this member of Congress, this Arab American, as essentially aiding and abetting terrorism. And so this is the fear that, you know, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on, right? Every member up there essentially has this kind of fear. And it has, unfortunately, I think, too often a, a paralyzing effect. You know, the, the cognitive switch just goes off. It's in hind brain mode, et cetera. So we have a new Congress. Uh, and what is the likelihood of seeing some kind of specific reform to any of these surveillance authorities or, or even just checks on them well, coming in the next two years. Right. Well, as Julian pointed out, I mean, you have this ticking clock of the three authorities under the uh, Patriot Act, three specific authorities under the Patriot Act that are going to expire. Um, Julian's already mentioned this metadata program one. 
uh, which is the Section 215 so-called business records provision. There's also the so-called lone wolf uh, terrorism provision, which has never been used in any prosecution that I'm aware of. And then finally, and this is actually one of the few pieces of the Patriot Act that I will say is, is useful, and that's the roving wiretap authority. And that's, that authority was created, of course, because when FISA was originally passed in 1978, we didn't have these things called cell phones and tablets and so on. Everybody was tied to landlines. We live in a different world now. And so you, you need to be able, law enforcement, the intelligence community do need to be able to track bad guys whenever they use different kinds of technology. I think that that gives you a crucible, essentially, in which you have at least the chance, the chance to force some measures of reforms. It'll come down, I think, more on the Senate side to whether folks like Rand Paul, Ron Wyden, maybe some others are going to be willing to really hold up the process unless they get the kind of reforms that they're actually looking for. Julian, how likely is that to, is that to happen? Uh, you know, I think they'll have to do something at least cosmetic just because I don't think the House is going to be willing to pass a straight reauthorization. I mean, James Sensenbrenner, who, who proudly describes himself as one of the authors of the Patriot Act, has said that he uh, would rather they simply lose this authority than, uh, than have it reauthorized without reform. Um, not clear how terrible that would actually be for, for some years after the uh, 215 authority was created. It wasn't used at all. And in fact, when it was first used, uh, Inspector, uh, Inspector General inquiry found it was used because someone at FBI headquarters finally said, well, gosh, Congress is going to be looking at this to see whether we need it. We'd better start using it so we can tell them we need it uh, or they'll take the authority away. I mean, this is the, 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 the logic internally. Um, unfortunately, it seems like the, the push is, if anything, in the other direction, uh, certainly in the, in the aftermath of the very high-profile Sony hack, uh, we've seen the reintroduction of uh, CISPA, which has uh, mercifully been stalled since 2011, the uh, cybersecurity and information sharing proposal. The president has now come forward uh, with his own seemingly uh, less malign version of that. Um, but the idea behind all of them is that uh, now that the threat is not just terrorist, but uh, cyber attacks of various kinds that the solution is to ensure ever more data sharing with the government uh, in order for them to be able to better protect us. No one ever really connects this, I think, to um, any kind of coherent case that that was somehow the missing element that allowed some cyber attack that's in the headlines to occur. If you look at the Sony hack, it seems like you know, sadly, the reason security is hard is that you've got lots and lots of uh, diverse private networks that all need to um, harden their own attack surfaces uh, in order to resist attack. And there's just not a lot the government can do about that. If an employee in your IT department is uh, not, not cautious about clicking on links from uh, shady emails they get, uh, you're going to have a vulnerability. If as Sony uh, did, you have installed sophisticated network monitoring software, but it's not configured to send security and intrusion alerts to the right people uh, when when you are facing an attack. There's not a lot the government can do about that. Um, in a lot of these cases, I think the reality is um, the problems are complicated. Uh, there's not a lot, at least legislatively, that can be done to solve them, even in terms of intelligence community dysfunction and intelligence failure. A lot of the problems there have to do with 
culture, details of implementation, things that are really hard to fix at the statutory level. But Congress is is really always like the drunk in the streetlight in the old joke. Uh, you know, I, I drop my keys off in the bushes, but the light is better over here. So that's where I'm going to look for them. It may be that the things Congress can do to improve our cybersecurity um, are pretty limited. The, the, the things that will improve our security are not the kind of things Congress has any control over, but something must be done. So Congress will do whatever it can do. All right. We're going to leave it there. Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and I'll again commend to you uh, the conference that was held in December dealing with a surveillance authority in, in the wake of these uh, revelations of the past uh, year or so, year and a half or so, and Patrick Eddington, policy analyst for Homeland Security and Civil Liberties here at the Cato Institute. We have a wealth of resources on these subjects at our website, cato.org. A fiscally sound federal government should start with an end to all grants to state and local governments. So says former U.S. Senator James L. Buckley in his new book, Saving Congress from Itself, where he proposes just that. Buckley made his case at a Capitol Hill briefing in December. My epiphany began a dozen years ago when, on my retirement and return to Connecticut, I subscribed to a nearby city's daily papers. I soon found it filled with reports of federal grants in support of an astonishing variety of purely local purposes. These included, for example, a $1.5 million grant of highway trust funds for the rehabilitation of a vandalized railroad station that had long since been converted to private non-transportation uses, nearly $2 million to replace a one-lane bridge connecting two small communities a dozen miles from my home, financing for an art center honoring Katherine Hepburn, and a half million dollars a grant to widen two streets leading to a school. That last is my favorite example of congressional imagination. Those sidewalks are being widened courtesy of an act of Congress titled the Federal Safe Routes to School Program. Its explicit purpose is to fight juvenile obesity by encouraging children to bike or walk to school. I'm not aware that the parents of the children attending that school feel that that is the most cost-effective way to slim their children. But no matter, you don't turn down Santa Claus even if the money he distributes comes from the federal taxes you pay or from the debt that those children will have to repay. Congress finds its authority to create such programs in a 1937 Supreme Court construction of the Constitution's spending clause, which empowers it to spend money, quote, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Mischief lies in the words general welfare. The Supreme Court recently summarized that holding as enabling Congress in pursuit of its understanding of the general welfare to use federal funds to, quote, induce the states to adopt policies that the federal government itself could not impose. Thus, Congress is now licensed to concern itself with areas in which it is forbidden to act 
by offering to subsidize a whole spectrum of state activities on the condition that the states accept Congress's directions on how they are to discharge their own responsibilities. Because those programs deal with matters beyond Congress's constitutional authority, the court has made it plain that participation in them may not be coerced. As I know from my own experience as a senator, those in elective office are always in search of ways to maintain closer contact with their constituents and of new ways uh, to please them. The Supreme Court's 1937 decision opened up a vast new horizon for doing precisely that. It was not until the Lyndon Johnson administration began invading areas that had formerly been considered off limits to the federal government, however, that uh, uh, members of Congress came to realize the political opportunities that this new court precedent had opened up for them. Thus, while at the outset of that administration there were just 132 such programs, today there are more than 1,100 of them. In 1970, when I was elected to the Senate, those programs distributed $24 billion. This coming year, they will distribute almost $641 billion, which will amount to one-sixth of total federal spending, and all for purposes that are the exclusive business of the states. A surprising aspect of this development is how few people, including those here on Capitol Hill, are aware that those figures do not begin to reflect the full cost of those programs or of the vast changes they have brought about in the way we now govern ourselves. Because those grants come with the most detailed instructions, their total out-of-pocket cost to the federal fisc includes not just the amounts distributed, but the expenses incurred in drafting regulations, screening grants applications, and ensuring, ensuring that recipients comply with the federal rulebook. The cost of that additional work has been estimated at $1 for every 10 distributed for a total of about $64 billion in the coming year. The major cost of the federal government, however, may well be the diversion of congressional attention from the critical issues that only Congress can address. Studies confirm that its members spend heroic amounts of time on their work. Those studies also confirm that they spend a major portion of their time attending to constituent concerns that, unfortunately, tend to focus on matters that are the responsibilities of governors and city councils rather than those of a congressman. Matters such as public housing, job training, education, homelessness, and unfilled potholes. That last uh, comes to mind because a recent senator's attention to urban minutia actually earned him the nickname of Senator Pothole. But those are precisely the kinds of matters to which those 1,100 grants and aid programs are addressed. The costs at the state level are so diverse that it is impossible in this presentation to describe them all or to give an adequate idea of their cumulative impact. But here are some of the kinds to which I refer. To ensure compliance with the detailed regulations governing their use, 
federal grants and uh, add layers of state and local administrative expenses to the costs of the subsidized projects. They also impose one-size-fits-all requirements on states as different as Arizona, Alaska, and New York, thus preventing their officials from applying common sense and local knowledge in securing the vast, best value for the money expended. Furthermore, they can trigger a host of unfunded mandates. I believe there are more, more than a thousand of them today. So, mandates such as the Bacon-Davis Act's requirement that the equivalent of union wages be paid for construction work involving the expenditure of any federal dollars, which can add as much as 20% to the cost of work. They distort state priorities by offering lucrative grants for purposes of often trivial importance. They encourage the waste that comes from, with spending someone else's money, what economists refer to as cost externalization, and they undermine accountability because state officials bound by federal regulations cannot be held responsible for the costs and failures of the projects they manage. And because those regulations are made by distant bureaucrats, frustrated citizens who are directly affected by those programs have lost their ability to decide how their tax dollars are to be used. To compound the injury, I have found no evidence that the intervention of the federal government in the delivery of state and local services has improved their quality, but there is ample evidence of its failure to do, uh, to do so. The site, uh, to cite just one example, the feds first became involved in education in a significant way almost 50 years ago with the enactment of the Elementary and Secondary Act of 1965. Yet as Andrew Colson has demonstrated in his exhaustive 2014 study, State Education Trends, during the succeeding decades, there has been no improvement in the quality of education nationally, despite a tripling of inflation-adjusted dollars spent per child. On the other hand, about the only encouraging developments in the field of education, such as vouchers and charter schools, are the results of state and community initiatives. This litany of costs notwithstanding, advocates of federal grants argue that they are warranted for two reasons. The first is that the federal government is able to attract the greater, expert, a greater expertise than the states. Uh, that is no doubt true, but it begs the question as to whether academic prowess uh, <clears throat> trumps the hands-on experience and personal accountability on which the states once relied. Compare the Centers for Disease Control's bungling of the Ebola crisis with New Jersey's simple policy of quarantining those exposed to the disease. The advocate's second argument is that federal grants redistribute money from the wealthier states to the poorer ones, thus enabling the latter to maintain appropriate standards in such key areas as education. That is a seductive argument because the per capita income of the 10 poorest states is only about 68% of that of the 10 richest. Variations in state cost of living, however, 
can muddy the analytical waters. To cite one extreme example, Mississippi's per capita income is 75% of Hawaii's, but its cost of living is only 55% of the latter's. I doubt, though, that anyone would suggest that Mississippians who inhabit our poorest state should send care packages to Hawaii, which is our 17th wealthiest. Redistribution, redistribution is thus a weaker argument than it appears. But if redistribution is indeed a proper uh, function of the federal government, and I don't know if it is, there is a far better way to achieve that goal without imposing webs of re federal regulations on all the states, rich and poor alike. The federal government could simply provide the have-not states with block grants having the sole requirement that the recipients use the money for welfare or education or some other specific purpose. Under that approach, Washington would not be telling the states how to meet their own responsibilities. Free and open political speech is constantly at risk. Eric O'Keefe, director and treasurer of the Wisconsin Club for Growth, detailed his experience with a state raid on his home all over constitutional political speech. He spoke at a Cato Institute event in Chicago in December. 14 months ago uh, this morning, um, search warrants were executed pre-dawn in Wisconsin on five different locations between 6 and 6.15 a.m. October 3rd. Sun up was 6.55, so these were in the dark, flak-vested sheriff's deputies. They lit up homes, suburban homes, in case anyone would flee. Uh, children were at home in multiple of these homes, uh, and they conducted searches, which we call raids, uh, for political information. Um, the people whose homes they were searching had a combined over 90 years of experience in political engagement in America with no sanctions or violations of any kind. Um, they went for more or less the behind-the-scenes operatives in Wisconsin, and me, uh, a, a kind of a connector of resources and, and political activity. They picked five targets in this John Doe investigation, uh, of which I am one. I'm under a gag order uh, from a judge to not speak about it, which I happily defy today. <laughs> and I, <laughs> um, and, and I have many times th uh, since this ridiculous attack. Um, my house, by the way, was not raided for the sole reason that they did not trust the sheriff to cooperate with them. I live in a rural county with 20,000 residents, and. Um, they sought statewide uh, law enforcement authorities so they could bring in people from another county, but it didn't work fast enough. So my house was a last-minute scratch. And my house is full of interesting political documents, by the way, <laughs> from around the country. Um, so on October 3rd, I was served with a long subpoena, an outrageous subpoena, seeking all my political correspondence with numerous people nationally and in the state back to the spring of '09 everything. Um, it had a list of 29 entities, all corresponds with them, and it had the names of various low-profile people who I communicate with. I mean, it was outrageous on its face. Um, I, I learned a, 
a few things from Ed Crane over the years about uh, the importance of, uh, of timely defiance. So I sent my attorney the subpoena and I sent him a, uh, an email which said, uh, uh, Eddie, um, I've got this seven page subpoena to respond to and I've drafted a reply already, uh, but the problem is it's only two words long and the second one is you. <laughs> and uh, Eddie drafted a 27-page motion to quash, which amazingly enough prevailed on a judge they had picked. However, the authorities who were pursuing us continued to engage, um, and they still are. This thing is still alive, although they, it's going very badly for the other side. I'm going to describe a little more of the raid so you get a sense of the contempt in which they hold the American people. Um, they took 2.5 hours. They rifled all drawers, documents, and files. They took all political documents that they could find. They took all electronic documents. They took children's computers and phones and spouses' computers and phones. Took them all. They carted these out in daylight because now the sun is up. School buses went by. The children were not allowed to go on them. They were told to not tell the school why they were late. So. And, and then this gag order says we're not to talk to anyone but our lawyer. Well, guess what? Regular people don't have a lawyer. Uh, not to talk to anyone but your lawyer. Not to tell anybody that your house was searched. Not to tell anybody that you were subpoenaed or any of the contents thereof. An outrageously unconstitutional gag order. Um, uh, and uh, consider just for a minute the implications of that. This is a traumatic event for a family witnessed by neighbors and they're told, don't, talk to, don't tell them what happened, don't tell them why, don't talk to your church group, don't talk to your sister. In my case, implicitly on my subpoena, don't talk to my wife. Um, absolutely outrageous. Um, subsequently, I learned the following, which might make you wonder why they were conducting these searches uh, on October 3rd of 2013. In 2012, already, they had subpoenaed the internet service providers of 18 people, including two email addresses of mine, asking for all emails for a, multi, for a year and a half period, including all deleted emails. All emails, not all political emails. They had subpoenaed all the major cell phone providers in the country because they subpoenaed the cell phone records of 18 people. So this, you see, is beyond NSA, by the way, because the NSA doesn't know what it has, and these were targeted illegal searches. They had subpoenaed the bank records of the Wisconsin Club for Growth. Um, and the Wisconsin Club for Growth, by the way, for uh, this is uh, Steve Moore country I'm in. Steve Moore of Chicagoland started the Club for Growth years ago. Uh, and uh, for a while, Howie Rich, longtime Cato board member, had encouraged uh, Steve, as I had too, to set up state clubs for growth as chartered entities, independent C4s in the states. We did that in 04 in Wisconsin, and we did a half dozen other states. That's the entity that became the focus of the prosecutorial attack. So they had hundreds of thousands of emails and documents already. They had the full records of our contributors, the front and backs of checks. Um, and, uh, and they had obtained those in a prior secret John Doe investigation, which was expanded at the request of the prosecutors 18 times. What that means is they were grabbing evidence secretly, finding something interesting, going back to the judge and saying, hey, can we look for X, which they had just found. None of these subpoenas or warrants was I able to challenge. None would withstand legal scrutiny, I'm sure. I still haven't seen the subpoenas or the warrants, but, the, but judges who have looked at this have said that their theory is incorrect in the first place. So 
Um, so it's, it's just outrageous. Um, part of the reason I've been able to deal with it forcefully, frankly, is my Cato libertarian type background. Um, one of the uh, uh, favors that Ed Crane did for me early in my political activism was lunch in the Senate dining room with Gene McCarthy. Remember that, Ed? <laughs> so Gene McCarthy was a plaintiff in, and so was Ed Crane in Buckley v. Vallejo, the landmark 1976 uh, uh, Supreme Court decision in which they rewrote a preposterously, outrageously unconstitutional law and left us with an outrageously unconstitutional law. I mean, consider this. The, the, the law we've had ever since then is that if you're running for office, you can spend a million dollars of your own money, but you're limited in what you can give somebody else. Would Congress have ever voted for a law like that that said, okay, if you're wealthy, you can spend a lot of money. Otherwise, you have to raise it a 1000 at a time. No Congress ever voted for that. That is a product of Supreme Court rewrite. They rewrote much else of it. And I remember Ed saying early on that, the FECA amendments, the 1974 laws that created the FEC, et cetera, were the most successful legislation Congress had ever passed because it succeeded in its actual purpose, which was to entrench incumbents in power. So I read Buckley Vallejo when it was fresh and new. Uh, with Ed, I'm a founding board member of the Center for Competitive Politics. I'm pretty confident that my adversaries in Wisconsin understood what I thought of their campaign finance laws which is that they are wrong-headed, anti-liberty, and unconstitutional. What they may have missed is that I don't trust them, I don't believe there are neutral regulators, and I expect my political activities to be scrutinized, so I'm not capricious. So I comply with the letter of their unconstitutional laws. Uh, I defy the spirit of their laws, which is the spirit of censorship. And they know, they just know, that somehow I'm doing something that the law was intended to prevent. And they're right. I'm criticizing government. Uh, this whole attack uh, has completely reoriented my life, by the way, and it's been uh, quite a learning experience. For my conservative friends, though, it was much more stunning, and it has made libertarians of some of them. They had a higher opinion of law enforcement than I did and a higher opinion of the potential of the state to actually be a referee in any kind of political activities. Um, because of the brazen overreach and the capricious disregard of the Constitution coming up against a meticulous political operation, I've been driving litigation and public relations aggressively because it's, it's just a classic case where they came, they came after a, um, a clean operation and got hundreds of thousands of documents and didn't find anything wrong. It's in, 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 with the complexity of policies and campaign finance today, it's kind of amazing that they didn't come up with mistakes. Had they come up with mistakes, of course, I would have defended my colleagues in any case, but fortunately they were really, really meticulous. Um, I want to read to you some to just give you a flavor of what these people think they can do. Um, this is the petition for the commencement of a John Doe proceeding uh, which launched the proceeding that grew into the current one in August of 2012. This, of course, we did not know about until well into the, my federal lawsuit against these guys, when, and this has been uh, publicly disclosed, although they kept it under seal for a long time. Um, I request that these John Doe proceedings be... So this is from an assistant district attorney, County of Milwaukee. And by the way, this is a statewide investigation running out of the County of Milwaukee, which is an example of the imperious attitudes of prosecutors these days. I request these John Doe proceedings be secret for the following reasons. 
The investigation will focus on violations of Wisconsin Chapter 11, and in particular, the coordination of personal political campaign committees and C4 organizations for the purpose of circumventing the restrictions of Wisconsin Chapter 11. Consequently, it is expected that this investigation will lead to an examination of email, correspondence, and comp documents maintained by the Office of the Governor of the State of Wisconsin, Governor Scott Walker, Friends of Scott Walker Personal Campaign Committee, Wisconsin Club for Growth, and other related organizations. Likewise, I anticipate subpoenaing Wisconsin state officials, Wisconsin Senate candidates, campaign contributors, and contributors to C4 organizations during the course of the investigation to identify the purpose of the contributions and any coordination between personal campaign committees and, and the C4s. If held publicly in an investigation, then this matter will likely be the subject of significant publicity in the print and broadcast media. So he wants it secret. So let me describe what we were looking at here. Uh, the Wisconsin Club for Growth does only one thing. We, we raise money and spend it to voice political opinions. That's all we do. Everything we do is about drawing attention to particular issues and perspectives. And we disclose when we pay for an ad, and we disclose on a tax return when we make a grant to another organization. In that sense, we're an open book. We don't voluntarily disclose our donors because of the fear of retribution that some of them have. Of course, they already had our donors. They already knew who our donors were. So here's what they were doing. They were running an unconstitutional, secret investigation, trampling on rights, spending state resources in violation of the Constitution and Wisconsin state law, and coordinating, as it happens, with our speech police, the Wisconsin equivalent of the FEC is the Government Accountability Board. All of this secret, expensive, multi-year, illegal investigation done in the interest of disclosure. <laughs> because the public needs to know. So the reprehensible newspaper in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, editorialized that this investigation needs to go on and continue because we need to know what happened in 2011 and 2012? Well, everything we did was public, and what the government did is secret. And what they meant, by the way, is they want to know everything else I did. You can probably tell from the, I mean, this is, this is just incredibly harebrained. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go into the weeds just for a second for those of you who follow coordination, because we understood that the speech police in Wisconsin want coordination between a campaign for office and a C4 to be illegal but there was no McCain-Feingold-type law in Wisconsin. They wrote regulations in Wisconsin to try to regulate issue ads. I sued them in federal court, and they yielded. So they knew. I watched the law. I sued. This is 2011, I think. So with that backdrop, they come after us. So we decided we won't do any Walker issue ads because I'm close to people close to Governor Walker in terms of operatives. So the Wisconsin Club for Growth, which was the big dog during... On our side, it was a big dog in defending Act 10. We spent $12 million in 2011 from this state group and $8 million in 2012. We were defending the state Supreme Court, the issue in the legislature, and state Senate candidates being attacked by the union money. So we were formidable. Um, but we did no ads for, for Governor Walker or against Barrett. So they came up with this. Don't worry if you don't follow this. It's close to insane. <laughs> Scott Walker was not a candidate for office in 2011, according to ordinary Wisconsin law. Recall petitioning didn't start until November. He had won an election. He was not a candidate. Wisconsin Club for Growth had a fundraising operation, asked the governor to help us raise money to defend his reforms. 
he said, yeah, that looks like the way to go. So he encouraged people to give money to the Wisconsin Club for Growth. We spent it on ads related to Act 10, Senate candidates, issues in the legislature, never mentioning Walker. Their claim is the content of our ads did not matter, that Walker was always a candidate, and that if he wanted the ads, they were Walker campaign ads, and therefore all donors to the Wisconsin Club for Growth are actually donors to friends of Scott Walker, and we have illegally failed to report them as such. That's their theory. One of our lawyers has called this whole thing an investigation in search of a legal theory. In 2009, Brian Aitken, a media consultant and web entrepreneur, ran afoul of New Jersey's draconian gun laws when he was arrested while transporting two handguns unloaded and locked in the trunk of his car. Despite the fact that Aitken owned the guns legally and had called the New Jersey State Police for advice on how to legally transport his firearms, he found himself sentenced to seven years in prison. He discussed his new book, The Blue Tent Sky, at the Cato Institute in December. went to trial. And it was obvious that the argument that we were making was that I was moving from one house to another. And in the state of New Jersey, there are the exemptions that allow for individuals to transport firearms and ammunition, hollow point ammunition, from the place of purchase to your house, from your house to go hunting, from your house to go to the shooting range, and in the case of firearms, from one house to another. And we spent a very long time discussing these exemptions. The prosecutor talked about the exemptions. The police officer testified that I was moving. My roommate testified that I was moving. Uh, actually, every witness testified that I was moving. But every time that we tried to present evidence that supported that, the, the judge denied it. We had closing documents from the sale of my house in Colorado that sold 11 days after I was arrested. And he refused. Uh, for that to be admitted. He also tried to refuse uh, the admission of the phone call that I had with the New Jersey State Police asking them how I transport firearms legally in the state of New Jersey. And finally, when he instructed the jury on how to deliberate, he told them they were only allowed to consider whether or not I possessed firearms, something that I never denied, and told them that if they were convinced that I did own firearms and that I ha had possessed them, that they must find me guilty because I was guilty of illegal possession of firearms. And we objected to that because there were the exemptions and the jury is supposed to be charged on what these exemptions are, specifically the state exemptions, but also the Federal Firearm Owners Protection Act that allows an individual to tra travel from one place where firearms are legal to another place where firearms are, are also legal, unmolested by police officers. And the judge at first said, well, I think that the two exemptions are redundant. I don't think that the jury needs to know about both of them. So instead of giving them the Federal Firearm Owners Protection Act and the state exemptions, we'll just give them the state exemptions. And then a few minutes later, he decided that he wasn't going to give them the state exemptions either. So they were only allowed to consider if I had guns. And if I had them, I was guilty of a second degree felony and the punishment for that is five to 10 years incarceration with a mandatory minimum of 36 months behind bars. That has since been amended to 42 months in prison as a mandatory minimum. And that's what Shanine Allen, if you've heard about Shanine's case, 
that's what she was facing. Well, the jury thought this was a, a bit of a sham, and they came back and asked the judge for the exemptions. They pretty much said, how can we spend this entire trial talking about what these exemptions are, and then when we go to deliberate, you tell us we're not allowed to consider what they are. And the, the judge sent the jury back to, back to uh, the deliberation spot, and the prosecutor and my attorney had a conversation with the judge about what they should do. And the prosecutor told the judge, well, clearly, I think you've got a very perceptive jury, and you need to be more stern and tell them that you are the judge and you are the law, and you're telling them as a matter of law that they're not allowed to consider any exemptions. And my lawyer made the obvious case that the jury wants the exemptions. They're the trier of facts. They need to know what these exemptions are. Otherwise, you're not letting them do their job. Give them the exemptions and let them do their job. And the judge said, well, no, I think, I think the prosecutor's right. I think I have determined as a matter of law that they're not allowed to know what the exemptions are. So I'm going to tell them that they, uh, they need to disregard any exemptions that they think might exist or that do exist. And if they think that Brian possessed firearms, they must find him guilty. And they came back a second time. And that request reads... Why did you make us aware at the start of trial that the law allows a person to carry a weapon if the person is moving or going to a shooting range? And during the trial, both the defense and prosecution presented testimony as to whether or not the defendant was in the process of moving. And then in your charge for us to deliberate, we are not permitted to take into consider consideration whether or not we believe the defendant was moving. But the judge refused again. Three times they came back practically begging for these exemptions, and all three times they were denied. The fourth time, they came back and found me guilty. Later, one of the jurors would send me an email, and we would talk back and forth, and he told me he was worried about what kind of repercussions he would face, if there would be retaliation if they tried to nullify the judge, the judge's instructions. He was worried that if they did what they thought was right, and that was find me not guilty, that the judge would retaliate and somehow hold them in contempt. And that was why he told me they found me guilty. My sentencing should have been only a month later, but it took two months because they had to find a replacement judge. Two weeks after my trial, uh, Governor Christie declined to reappoint the judge to his life sentence. This has pretty much nothing to do with my case and uh, allegedly is related to two other cases, one which I'll, I'll speak about very briefly because it's interesting to note what's legal in New Jersey and what's illegal in New Jersey. In one case that my judge, Judge Morley, presided over, a police officer in Morristown, New Jersey, was uh, caught on video receiving oral sex from cows. And the prosecutor said, well, there's a problem here. Uh, you know, we'd like to charge this police officer and get him off the police force because that's, you know, there's something wrong here. And they found out that bestiality is not actually illegal in the state of New Jersey. So they couldn't charge him with bestiality. So the prosecutor said, okay, well, we'll charge him with animal abuse then, animal cruelty. And they moved forward with that. And during uh, a pretrial motion, the judge wasn't convinced that, uh, that
that you could prove that the cows didn't enjoy it. How could you prove that it was cruel? And so the charges against the police officer were dismissed. And then he was, that same police officer went on to rack up, I think, 42 charges of sexually abusing and molesting underage girls and was ultimately found guilty, I believe, of 18 of them. So those are the kinds of people that this particular judge went out of his way to protect and I'm the exact kind of person he went out of his way to make sure was convicted. Ultimately, I was sentenced to seven years in prison. The mandatory minimum was 36 months, so that means before I could even be eligible for parole, I had to serve three years in prison for a nonviolent and victimless crime. And I spent four months bouncing between state prisons before Several hundred thousand people signed petitions, made phone calls to their senators, and even on one day crashed the lines to Governor Christie's office asking for the governor to release me from prison. And on December 20th, 2010, Governor Christie signed my commutation order and released me from prison six years and eight months early. The, uh, the four months that I spent in prison are things that I don't really enjoy talking about, but uh, I touch on them in, in the book as, as much as possible. Several chapters are dedicated to that time in my life. Um, but it's difficult to talk about what the consequences are uh, when you look at the experience of spending four months and preparing your entire life for the reality that it will probably be four or five years before you get out of prison. So mentally preparing yourself to, to get ready to go to prison, where the prison that I was sentenced to uh, was primarily known for sexual deviants, uh, pedophiles and rapists, and then other individuals who couldn't be in general population. So uh, there was the occasional entertaining NBA athlete or soccer player uh, or even police officer or judge who couldn't be in general population. But for the most part, these were rapists and pedophiles. And in some ways, uh, I was told that I was lucky that I was sent there and not to, say, Bayview, which has uh, a reputation for where all the young kids go to prove themselves and kill kids to get initiated into gangs. So in a lot of ways, they, were, they told me that I was lucky to be surrounded by pedophiles and not actually at one of these other prisons. It's also difficult because in addition to that, there's not even a conversation that I can have with my son, whose birthday is only a couple months from now, on February 15th, and who I haven't been able to see for his, since his first birthday, which is coming up on five years now. And I'm afraid that all he knows is that his father is a felon and his father is disinterested in him and doesn't love him. And that couldn't be further from the truth. But the state of New Jersey specifically does not care about law-abiding gun owners. In fact, the attorney general in 2008 issued a directive, and I think that directive was why the police officers, the prosecutor, and the judge were so adamant about getting me incarcerated and putting me in jail 
but she issue, issued a directive to all the prosecutors saying that anyone caught with a gun, regardless of whether they have a criminal history or if they have malicious intent, should be prosecuted uniformly and vigorously. And that simply meant that the person who was a, a gangbanger and had just held up a gas station and killed somebody was supposed to be tried just as severely as I was for having firearms locked and unloaded in the trunk of my car. And in fact, my mom, someone who's worked for the Burlington County Family Support Organization, knows several violent felons who have no problem seeing their son. Uh, and here I am, uh, an individual they consider to be the poster child for Second Amendment rights, which I think is interesting because before January of 2009, I was a very recreational gun user. And in fact, since January 2nd, 2009, I haven't even held a gun. So it's, it's interesting that they've decided to attack me and prosecute me in this way uh, when I was really just a recreational gun owner who purchased firearms to defend his family and defend his son. And as the ultimate punishment, they've taken him away from me. A depression in the 1920s was left untreated. Economic conditions quickly improved, and the Roaring Twenties began. That's the story of the last depression that government left alone. So says James Grant in his new book, The Forgotten Depression, 1921, The Crash That Cured Itself. He spoke at the Cato Institute in December. The story of the Forgotten Depression, by the way, I'm talking to my publishers, I think it would be a little less self-effacing if the next edition were called The Previously Forgotten Depression. Uh, but as it is, the book is entitled The Forgotten Depression. It deals with the events uh, in the aftermath of World War I, culminating um, uh, in the early 20s. And indeed, the narrative continues a bit into 1930. Um, I propose to tell you a little bit about what happened, uh, why it happened, and, uh, and how it, uh, it came to a a timely and uh, rather prosperous ending, um, and then to reflect a little bit about what might, how this might all bear on the present day's uh, finances. Um, what happened, pure and simple, was a, uh, a mighty inflation, an unprecedentedly sharp collapse in prices, an actual deflation, and then uh, uh, a remarkably dynamic a recovery from that. Uh, events that uh, I think our present-day policymakers and politicians would give their eye teeth to, uh, to repeat, certainly the dynamic recovery part. Um, uh, the story begins um, in the uh, late 19-teens. America had entered the First World War, had, had uh, participated in the victory, uh, culminating with the armistice of November 11th, 1918, and, and then what happened is what was not supposed to have happened. In every preceding great conflict, uh, certainly in modern times, uh, uh, the peace had, uh, had been marked by a collapse in, in speculative enterprise and in prices. Uh, peace had meant deflation. 
It had meant deflation in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars and the aftermath of the Civil War in America, and people had prepared themselves for the same in 1918. But what happened instead was the continued levitation of prices. Uh, as measured, the CPI, which had been rising in the low to mid double digits in 1915 and 16 and 17 and 18, continued to do so in 1919. And people organized their affairs for what seemed to be, uh, on the evidence, a, a more or less permanent state of, of, uh, of high speculative spirits. One saw this throughout the length and breadth of America and Detroit. Uh, General Motors, even then the great behemoth of, of American industry, uh, erected the largest headquarters building extant anywhere, I think. Uh, Billy Durant, the president of General Motors, speculated on leverage and with great success in rising shares of GM. In Kansas City, a returning a National Guard artillery captain named Harry Truman opened a haberdashery with his wartime buddy, Eddie Jacobson. Uh, farmers planted fence post to fence post. They, uh, they couldn't uh, imagine um, why prices of their crops would not continue to rise. And uh, in New York City, uh, the largest bank of the time, uh, the National City Bank, subsequently renamed Citigroup, lent not wisely but well against the collateral of sugar on the island of Cuba. These were representative of the response of uh, Americans to uh, the price signals sent out from principally Washington, D.C. The, the First World War had been financed mainly on the cuff. And um, the Treasury borrowed, and the Federal Reserve then wet behind the ears, uh, was dragooned or certainly enlisted in the public service. It, the Fed, it extended credit uh, for individuals and for other institutions to, uh, uh, to buy the Treasury's debt. The money supply went up, interest rates went down. Uh, there's a great levitation of prices on the back of what was a, a really enjoyable credit inflation. Uh, this lasted until it couldn't last, at which point it stopped. And the stopping point uh, occurred in the spring of 1920 um, in Tokyo, where they traded silk, uh, suddenly there was an unscripted and unexpected collapse in the price of silk. Other commodity prices began to buckle. And uh, the world over, uh, the idea began to take hold that, in fact, the speculative aftermath of the war had ended. In 1929, a great thunderclap from the corner of Broad and Wall in the shape of the stock market crash signaled the close of one credit cycle. In 1920, there was no such single event, but rather a serial collapse in the prices of, of commodities, um, both at retail and especially at wholesale. Um, nobody had seen the likes of it uh, uh, over the course of perhaps nine months the average of wholesale commodity prices collapsed on the order of 40 to 45 percent. Uh, contemporaries termed this a debacle without parallel. Now, before going a little deeper into the symptoms of the depression that in fact unfolded, I think I should have a, a quick note on a, a kind of a scholarly footnote, not that I set up as a scholar, but a scholarly footnote on differences of opinion with respect to the severity 
of this cyclical event. What to call it? Uh, prices down, as I say, 40-odd percent at wholesale. New York Stock Exchange listed equities down 45 percent. Industrial production down 30-odd percent. Uh, inflation, uh, um, no. Deflation, uh, evident in the inventory cycle. Uh, unemployment, not then measured, but certainly severe, evidently, in the double digits. Um, contemporaries call this a depression. There is, however, a school of thought that holds that uh, uh, this cyclical event was nothing more than a very, very severe cyclical uh, recession. Uh, Christina Romer, an accomplished economist out west, uh, has uh, made this argument in a learned paper. Um, my line on this is that uh, uh, one goes with uh, contemporary observations, and I will recite some facts and figures that I think support the idea that, uh, that what happened was much more akin to what we might call a depression. What were some of these symptoms? Well, uh, corporate profits collapsed. All the physical measures of production uh, registered similar collapses uh, in a post-mortem that the Herbert Hoover-led Commerce Department produced towards the end of the 1920s. Uh, they had this to say. They said that, uh, let's see, auto production down 23%. Uh, the number of companies reporting net income in excess of 100,000, that was down 45%. This is all peak to trough, 1920, 21. Uh, hourly manufacturing wages down 22%. Between 1919 and 1920 on the one hand and 1920, 21 on the other, average disposable farm income uh, was down 57%, no small thing in an economy in which uh, agriculture still contributed between 17 and 18 percent of national income. Everyone either farmed or knew someone who did. This was a terribly dispiriting collapse in the farm economy. So, um, but I have a trump for Ms. Romer. That my trump card is the uh, is a song uh, uh, that was written and became very popular in that era. And it was it contained the lyrics: "The the rich get richer and the poor get children." This is, of course, the between Ain't We Got Fun. I submit this to you, ladies and gentlemen, as a clinching piece of non-econometric um, evidence uh, in the service of the idea that this was some light show in 1920 and 21. So down things went. Um, mass area. What to do? What to do? Does anyone recall the uh, in Hong Kong in 1961 through 70 or so, there was a, a financial secretary named Copperthwaite and um, uh, I think it was later Sir John Copperthwaite, but at the time it was Mr. Copperthwaite, on principle refused to collect um, what were macroeconomic data from the colony of Hong Kong on the grounds that someone would put those numbers to use uh, through interventions and thereby to stymie the, uh, the spontaneity and the workings of the price mechanism in the colony of Hong Kong. That was not the explicit policy of America in 1920, but it was the virtual policy. Uh, economic data were very sparse, um, and the government uh, actually didn't know what was going on. Uh, uh, the Republicans convened in 1920 and for their run at the presidency in the fall, and uh, the word economy uh, did not appear 
in the uh, platform, except in the context of uh, economy and government. Uh, the administration of Woodrow Wilson was incapacitated, as indeed was the president. He had suffered a stroke, of course, famously while trying to sell his League of Nations out west. And, uh, and the administration of Wilson did nothing in the face of what it really couldn't measure. Uh, the program was to balance the budget and restore American public finance to a peacetime footing. And the, balance, the budget was, in fact, balanced in both Depression years. Uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, then still a novice at making errors, it has become much more proficient at the, uh, but then it was uh, still in short pants in the policy making department. And uh, uh, it felt, did the Fed, that uh, it should first shake itself loose from the baleful influence of the Treasury, and then it should do its best to restore uh, the price level to a proper peacetime footing. That's entailed some. Uh, pretty severe deflationary pressure. I want you to listen to the, to the words of, of uh, Benjamin Strong, who was the, I guess he was the Janet Yellen of his day. He ran the New York Fed, but sensibly he ran the institution. And uh, uh, Benjamin Strong was by no means a cruel man, but he was a believer uh, in the classical approach to money and banking. He, he, he believed that uh, uh, that if inflation were perpetuated in the American price system, it would ultimately uh, deliver a much greater calamity than what was uh, to come in the aftermath of the boom. So here is Benjamin Strong holding forth in private well before uh, the cycle had turned. It was a rather pro prophetic letter he wrote. But here is Strong thinking about what was to come in American po monetary policy. And he writes as follows. Uh, he said that uh, he wanted a somewhat changed policy, not the inflationary uh, treasury subsidizing policy of the war years. He wanted something else. And he, what he said he wanted was, um, was deflation. That's what he said. And he said, um, he said he also believed that this must be accompanied by some rather serious losses because our increased prices have occurred in a country enjoying exceptional prosperity in which merchants and manufacturers have unfortunately maintained too large stocks of goods as compared with their foreign competitors. I believe this period will be accompanied by a considerable degree of unemployment, but not for very long, and that after a year or two of discomfort, embarrassment, some losses, some disorders caused by unemployment, we will emerge with an almost invincible banking position. That was, that was the, sensibly speaking, the head of American monetary policy reflecting on what was to come. So it came, the storm came, uh, and it passed. And what might account for its passing? Well, you'll recall that uh, just now that uh, Strong had reflected on the outsized inventory positions of American enterprise. And they were indeed outsized. And one of the things that accounts for the brevity relatively speaking, 18 months of this violent cyclical disturbance and the dynamism of the subsequent recovery is the inventory adjustments made by American business acting in an economy unburdened with excessive regulation. And I want to favor you ever so briefly with uh, a few facts and figures from uh, the DuPont Company. Uh, the DuPont Company was uh, of course, was desolated to see the close of the First World War. The market for explosives dried up almost overnight. Uh, it was well managed. They made adjustments. And here is what it looked like top to bottom. 
uh, inventory is written down by half, earnings per share from $17.1920 to $2.35 in 1921, sales from $94 million in 1920 to $55 million. Uh, Irene DuPont, who was running the company, um, wrote to the stockholders and said, look, we either face a new normal or we face a cycle. He said, I vote for the idea that we face a cycle. He said, in the past year's production, we have drawn for raw material one half of our stocks from our own warehouses and purchased only one half. If every other company with which we did business had done the same, everything would be down by half, as indeed, in his case, in the case of that branch of industry, it had been down by half. So the inventory cycle ended. Uh, people stopped writing down inventory. They started writing up inventory once prices turned higher. Uh, finally, in closing, I want to favor you stock market buffs with a window on what a governmentally unmedicated bear market bottom in the stock market looks like. In 1921, in August, at the lows in equities, uh, the Coca-Cola company was trading for 1.7 times earnings and priced to yield on a dividend basis five and a quarter percent. Radio Corporation of America, not then revealed to be America's preeminent growth stock of the 1920s, was priced at exactly one times 1923 earnings. Uh, the Gillette Safety Razor Company, which had sold as many blades and razors in 1920 as it had in 1918, was priced to a dividend yield of 9% and a PE of about 5 or 6. The price mechanism worked. Uh, the labor market worked uh, to the desolation of many people who suffered, but it worked. Uh, America uh, came out of it, uh, uh, and the 20s proverbially roared. Cato Audio has gone digital. You can now access Cato Audio every month online at cato.org slash Cato Audio free of charge. We will be uploading the new issue of Cato Audio onto the site every month and have already started creating an extensive archive of recordings from previous years for you to enjoy. You can listen to the recordings online or download them to any MP3 device. If you have a paid subscription for CDs, and want to now switch to listening free every month to the digital recordings, just contact us at Cato Store at Cato.org and we'll provide you a full refund of your remaining subscription cost. Thank you for your support of Cato Audio, and we're delighted to be able now to provide you much more of it. Again, the new site is Cato.org slash Cato Audio. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month. <music>